0: In the early 1500s, a woman did the seemingly impossible in the Ottoman Empire. She officially married the Sultan and became the unofficial queen. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. This is Elizabeth. And in today's episode, we're discussing the role of women in the royal family of the Ottoman Empire. Well, specifically, we're discussing the role of Roxolana, the absolute game-changer who paved the way for later royal women to increase their influence at court. Much like my episodes on the Haitian Revolution, today's analysis of the past is also because I found myself teaching a topic about which I knew very little, the sultanate of women. And as one does, I decided to find out more. I was very lucky to discover Leslie Pierce's work, Empress of the East, on Suleiman the Magnificent's wife. But I discovered very quickly that when examining Roxolana and other important women of the Ottoman Empire, there's this massive caveat. You see, it was considered impolite or unnecessary for Ottoman diplomats to talk about women, full stop. Which means that what we learn about these women is limited often to reports by foreign ambassadors or visitors who never even met them. We are somewhat lucky, as I'll explain, to have some more materials about Roxolana's life, including some letters she dictated to her husband. But overall historians such as Pierce, who work on this topic, do so by weaving together disparate sources to try and make a whole picture. And will I succeed in doing that? I mean, I hope so, dear listener. Now, to fully understand the world that Roxolana turned upside down by marrying him to, we need to look at the Ottoman Empire more closely. To start, the Ottoman Empire was founded in the 15th century. The Ottoman Empire covered a larger geographic region of Asia and Europe for several hundred years. And the expansion of territory is one reason for the system of rule and secession that the Ottomans adopted by the 16th century, which is the time period we're discussing. While the dynasty that preceded the Ottomans, the Seljuks, had a tradition of powerful noble women, the Ottoman forged, at least initially, a different path. They also rejected the European practice of primogeniture, where the oldest son was the natural inheritor of his father's kingdom. These two dynastic decisions had massive impacts. As the Ottomans conquered land, they also captured and forced people into enslavement. Enslaved Christian boys were sometimes elevated to the rank of janissary, which was the Sultan's personal military force. And enslaved Christian girls, even more rarely, sometimes found themselves becoming the concubines of the Sultan. For over a century, the Ottoman Sultans did not marry. Their concubines, who were converted to Islam, bore their children, and if the child was a male, the concubine and the son would eventually retire to a far off province where the boy could learn how to govern. By having the sultan's children be born of enslaved women, the Ottomans cut down on the potential conflict of warring branches of the family tree. They also limited generational conflict in another way. When the father passed away, all of the brothers, and sometimes some cousins and uncles, with a claim to the throne, argued over who would take over. The claimant's mothers participated in behind-the-scene plotting and some diplomacy. When the new sultan was proclaimed, the most popular claimants who did not succeed, often again the sultan's brothers, were executed, so as not to pose a continued threat to the new sultan's power. As it was considered wrong to spill the blood of a member of the royal family, the executed claimants were strangled. Raised in this world in 1520, a young man named Suleiman found himself a sultan upon his father's death. Suleiman was just short of 26, and he had his mother to thank for his new rank. Until Suleiman Sultanat, the mothers of sultans were given the title Cradle of the Great. But Suleiman's mother, Hafsa Sultan, proved to be, like her daughter-in-law, a trailblazer. It was said that for 14 years, from 1520 to 1534, she was one of the most powerful people in the Ottoman Empire, and by extension, the world. For such a person, a new title was needed, and she became the mother sultan. But 1520 and the next few months was not only momentous for Suleiman because he became the sultan, it is also when he met Raksalana. A note about name choice. We don't know, as I will explain in more detail, Roxana's name. Roxana was the name given to her by European visitors to the Ottoman court, and it means Ruthenian, the region that it was believed from which Raksalana was kidnapped. The Ottomans called her Harem, Pierce chose to refer to her as Roxolana, and I'm continuing in that tradition. I suppose what we could say we do know about Roxolana is that she was a survivor. Interestingly, or I guess just matter-of-factly, in my process of research and writing, I, understandably, read works and take notes. Then I write an initial script based on what I remember, so that it all kind of flows as a story. I wrote the line that Roxolana was a survivor, and had to go back later to check something in Pierce's book, and then I realized that she too had a line where she said that directly and succinctly, she literally said Roxolana was a survivor. I didn't write this down as a note, and I'm not sure if it's stuck in the back of my head, but it does speak to all that she lived through to eventually achieve her place in Ottoman society. So then what did she survive? Her nickname Harem among the Ottomans meant cheerful one, and it was said that she was always smiling. And yet Why she came to be in the Sultan's harem was not a joyful one. You see, in 1441, the people of the Crimea became independent, and, to finance their lives, they began to run slave raids on neighboring areas, including what we would term Russia, Poland, and Lithuania. It is estimated that these raids, which last until 1774, are responsible for the kidnapping of approximately 20,000 people per year, and over 1 million throughout the centuries. Like other slave raiders, including those in Africa, we know that many of the people who were deemed inferior and unable to be sold as an enslaved person were murdered outright during these raids. Then, the majority of newly enslaved peoples were brought to the Ottoman slave markets, but they were also brought to slave markets in the Middle East, as well as in Genoa and Venice in Europe. It was in one of those raids that Roxolana was captured, potentially around the age of 13. While for centuries it was believed that Roxolana came from Russia, evidence now suggests that she was from Ruthenia, an eastern Slavic area which was then under the control of Poland. According to Pierce, she was most likely born Anastasia or Alexandra, potentially between 1502 to 1504. We don't know anything about her birth family other than they were Christian, because we do know that Ottomans only used Christian women as concubines for the sultan. There are rumors that Roxolana's father may have been an Orthodox priest, but again, we don't actually know that. Later stories on Roxolana's life were potentially invented once she became the Sultan's wife in order to give her an elevated history. But the raid Roxolana survived would have been brutal. As mentioned, these raids were unsurprisingly not peaceful, and for each person captured, many others were killed we don't know if 13-year-old roxalana had any other members of her community to travel with as they walked to kaffa a slave market in the ottoman empire pierce argues that 13 seems to be an understandable age because it would make roxalana old enough to survive there's that word again even if she had no one who knew her the walk to kaffa was awful Witnesses who watched the newly enslaved walk by recorded in letters and journals that they didn't know how any of the kidnapped people survived as their treatment was notoriously bad. It was violent, they were chained, they were underfed. Depending on from where Roxolana was kidnapped, there is some belief, as mentioned above, that she was 13 and it happened in the year 1516. Roxolana was not chosen as a concubine by Suleiman until 1520, For that reason, we have four lost years during which Roxolana would have been traded and sold and tutored. The enslaved were subject to physical examinations, and for women who were considered concubine potential, this included a virginity check. Who knows how many times Roxolana underwent this examination? Did it start when she was a 13 year old child? According to reports, Roxolana was red haired, a trait only one of her children would inherit and also attractive, but not overwhelmingly so. She was, however, pleasant and cheery and intelligent. These traits must have stood out to those buying and selling her until finally she ended up in Suleiman's harem in the old palace, the home for Ottoman women. Even in the harem, though, it was not a given that she would become Suleiman's concubine. Later reports said that the sultan would walk past rows of potential concubines and Drop a handkerchief in front of the woman he desired. This story appears to be false, and it's more likely that within the harem, Roxalana impressed either Suleiman's mother or another high-ranking woman, who suggested that the new sultan choose the 17-year-old. The women of the old palace were educated in domestic arts, converted to Islam, and taught Turkish. As kidnapped enslaved women from other regions, they didn't speak it or read it. But those chosen to be the sultan's concubine also had to be innately smart in the ways of palace intrigue and diplomacy. Concubine mothers of princes were expected to raise their sons up to be a potential ruler, and therefore only the brightest were chosen for the sultan. Roxolana must have satisfied these requirements, and based on what she accomplished, whoever singled her out was not wrong. Starting in 1521, Roxolana gave birth to six of the sultan's children, five boys and one girl. This was unheard of. In the Ottoman royal family, the sultan's concubine was to retire to child-rearing the moment she gave birth to a son. Concubines who gave birth to a son were no longer considered sexual beings, they became mothers preparing their princes for the future. And yet, for a completely unknown reason, after Roxelana gave birth to her first child, a boy, in October 1521, the sultan requested she return, and within four months she was again pregnant. And then again a few years later, in between military campaigns, Suleiman continued to return only to Roxana. As far as known, he never took another concubine, nor did he ever have children by anyone else. Suleiman and Roxalana were in a monogamous relationship. We have two anecdotes from this time period that demonstrate the importance of Roxana to Suleiman but also how not everyone was a fan of that, including, unsurprisingly, other concubines. These stories were related by European diplomats who visited or lived at the court of Suleiman so that they're all hearsay, but they also give us some insight into how Roxolana was viewed. The first anecdote revolves around her reaction when a high-ranking member of the Ottoman court gave Suleiman and his mother two enslaved women as potential concubines for the sultan. Allegedly, on learning this, Roxalana had an emotional outburst about how much this hurt her, and so the sultan and his mother sent the enslaved women away from the old palace to serve other roles. The fact that this story has not just the sultan, but also his mother feeling remorse about hurting Roxalana demonstrates how important she was to both of them. And perhaps it explains why she became his favorite. I mean, if his mother loved her, he loved her. Maybe? Could be. But not everyone loved her. Suleiman had other concubines and children before roxolana And unfortunately, in October 1521, just before roxolana gave birth to her first child, three of Suleiman's children by previous concubines died in a plague, leaving as his only surviving children his six-year-old son Mustafa by the concubine Mahadevrin, and roxolana's new baby as potential sultans. Mahadevran and Suleiman had followed Ottoman protocol. After the birth of their son, she retired from life as his concubine to focus on raising her son. When Raksalana was called back by the sultan and gave birth to a number of his children, Mahadevran was not pleased. At one point, the women had a physical fight that allegedly left Raksalana with scratch marks and bald spots. A few days later, the sultan sent word that he wanted Raksalana to, you know, come visit him and she sent back a message that it would be an insult for him if she arrived in her current state. Suleiman learned then what had happened, brought both women to him, and chastised Mahadevran for her actions. What contemporaries took from these stories was that Roxolana was definitely Suleiman's favorite, but that she was also capable of using his love for her to manipulate him through emotional displays. We don't hear much of Roxelana though, until 1534 when she and Suleiman, get this, got married. Early in 1534, Suleiman's mother passed away, and within two months Suleiman had married Roxalana, an act that no Ottoman sultan had engaged in for nearly 100 years. And eventually, Suleiman installed Roxalana in the new palace, heretofore the residence of men, and only where concubines visited, not resided. Roxelana was the first royal woman to live in the new palace. Another tradition was also changed at this point. While all of the sultan concubines were enslaved women, two rules have been created for them. First, if a concubine gave birth to a prince, she could not be sold or sent away during the child's upbringing. Then, when the sultan passed away, she was to be given her freedom. Side note, granting freedom was not unheard of in the Ottoman Empire, in fact there was a rule that enslaved people were to be freed after seven years and while not everyone adhered to this mandate strictly it is one of the reasons why the slave trade was so ubiquitous in the empire okay but back to raxalana before hers and Suleiman's marriage she was granted her freedom therefore after the wedding she was the queen in everything but an official title mainly because the ottoman did not have an official title for queen Suleiman and Roxolana did not publicly celebrate their wedding for two years, and that was because Suleiman went away on a military campaign. But when he did return and they did celebrate quite magnificently, European diplomats were taken aback. And it was at this point that people in Istanbul began to refer to Roxolana as a witch. For those of us who study early modern European history, believing that a queen has bewitched the king isn't a shock. It was, after all, one of the accusations against Anne Boleyn by Henry VIII right before he had her executed. But, although people in the streets, according to these same European diplomats, began to refer to Roxana negatively, Suleiman seemingly never wavered in his love for her. If anything, I'm reminded of Tsar Nicholas leaving his wife in charge when he went to the front during World War I. Even though most likely completely untrue reports were sent to him that Alexander was having an affair with Rasputin, Nicholas did not believe them, and instead continued to trust her to lead the government in his stead. Which brings us to another point about Suleiman and Roxalana's relationship, namely, her influence in political matters. It was believed by many that Roxolana was attempting to influence the sultan in a way that favored her sons. And I mean, let's face it, is that really that shocking that she would do it? It was Ottoman tradition as mentioned that upon a sultan's death, and once the new sultan was chosen, His brothers and other male relatives seen as competition were killed. As the mother of three young men believed to be capable of leading, her fourth son suffered ill health and was not seen as a possible contender. And she was also the stepmother of the sultan's oldest son, Mustafa. Roxolana knew, as did every prince's mother, that the lives of her children were not safe. While Roxalana's letters to Suleiman echo much of the language and love and wailing at separation that were to be expected, there are also instances where she seems to be supporting her son's positions. One of the most notorious rumors about Roxalana was that she was responsible for the murder of Mustafa, Suleiman's oldest son, and the favorite of the Janissaries, that elite military force that responded personally to the Sultan. However, it seems that these rumors were nothing more than that, but again, is it really that surprising or shocking if she did it? After all, only one can rule after her husband's death. But Suleiman and other members of the Ottoman court were not the only ones she wrote to. Letters containing well wishes and pieces of embroidery were received by the Polish king from Roxolana, which has furthered more modern ideas that Roxolana was Polish. And for all of the negative rumors and feelings surrounding Roxolana, she did leave behind a number of philanthropic gifts, from buildings to charities, including mosques and schools, a women's hospital, and a soup kitchen that fed up to 500 people a day. Roxolana's death in 1558, when she was in her mid fifties, was unexpected but not actually sudden. She had been in chronic ill health for years, and it was said that Suleiman aged overnight after she passed though he did live a while longer. And maybe thankfully for her, she died before one of her sons did indeed take the sultanate, but he also took the life of his remaining brother. Roxolana's greatest legacy was her impact on the Ottoman court. She ushered in a period known as the Sultanate of Women, where royal mothers and wives and daughters provided advice regarding the running of the empire as well as philanthropic activities. Interested in owning some Footnoting History merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes.